0: and welcome to the Austin Art Talk Podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Seth Orion Schweiger is an artist, curator, art critic, and arts writer, and teacher who splits his time between Austin and New York with his wife, Elizabeth, who is also an artist. As a writer, one of his goals is to attempt to communicate intelligently about art in a way that everyone can understand. I think we can all appreciate that. In recent years, the art creation side of his identity manifests in three exhibitions of work in different cities, which were called Complex 1, 2, and 3. In the interview, we speak in detail about each exhibition, his approach to the different aspects of his practices, about the Austin art scene, its strengths and weaknesses, and his future plans. Have a listen and share any feedback you have, and be sure to check out Seth's work online or in person if you have the chance. Here is Seth. Well, Seth, thanks for being on my podcast. Of course really appreciate it so you you're an artist and a curator and you're a writer and a critic so you're kind of coming at it from three different directions and i and i read in one of your interviews you said you're most interested in the way people experience art i mean does that still feel true
1: i mean i'm i'm definitely interested in the way people experience art and that part's definitely true um what i'm interested most in i think is just how people experience everything not limited to art um I think sometimes you can get kind of pulled into a whirlpool when you're a creative and you're making work. I think I've certainly fallen into a trap of thinking that that's everything. Oh, yeah. And it's not. You know, <laughs> it's. I think it's really important to keep in mind that for a lot of people, what we do becomes decoration or very, very fringe and has little bearing on their life. I think it's great when it becomes more than that, but... Yeah, I think sometimes you can fall into a trap of thinking that what you do might be more important to everyone
0: than it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you think about what you do then? Maybe you could just kind of, we could touch on each part of what you're doing and maybe even give me an idea of like where your ratio is of what percentage of each one you're kind of at right now. Well, it
1: changes all the time. Um, I think ideally I'd be doing maybe one or two curated shows a year of other people's work. I think I'd like to spend at least half of my time making my own artwork and then writing either about art or about other things for the mm-hmm. remainder of that mm-hmm. time. would be That would be sweet. I would love yeah. that. It never really turns out that way, um, and it changes year to year. So, for example, I didn't think I'd be doing any curating this year, and when we came back to Austin, we lucked into some space. I knew Elizabeth. My wife had plenty of work right next door. Yeah. That hadn't been shown, or at least a lot of it hadn't been shown. And so we had this opportunity that I was absolutely not planning on, not expecting. And without that, that would have been a year without curating. And uh-huh. that's okay. I, I'm okay with it moving, ebbing, and flowing. But I'm I'm involved in other aspects of art as well. You know, it's, it's kind of just being open to do other things. So I've gotten involved in different angles in museum work and at the universities, teaching sometimes, um, sometimes hanging work. Uh, sometimes doing PR for different uh, individual artists as well as institutions. So that's just, I think it's part of my personality. I get bored easy. I want to keep moving on. I want to keep learning things. And so you end up developing a broader skill set.
0: When you look back through your life, do you see kind of like the origins of you being an artist or being so wanting? I mean, your whole life is about art and the arts, isn't it, in a way? it's. A I mean, lot of it. Yeah. Did you see that um, back way back when you were a kid? I
1: think everybody does, really. I think I think a lot of people start off doing creative things and eventually let that go for yeah. whatever reason. Maybe it's a good thing that people let that go and that not everybody is trying to be an artist full time. But for me, it it never broke. The creative side was always there.
0: Can you talk about that at all? Like just growing up and finding art or you know studying art just kind of elaborate on that a little yeah,
1: bit Yeah um for me let's see I uh, beyond beyond like what everybody does when they're a kid yeah. um, <laughs> like working with crayons and uh, you know play Yeah. um beyond that I went to a very small high school the town I grew up in was about 600 people my class was about 40 and that was a combination of a few small towns There wasn't much of an art program but there was something. The, that was in
0: Wyoming, right?
1: That's right, in yeah. Dayton, Wyoming. And the the teacher I had there, once you took the two art classes that were available, <laughs> um, she was like, Oh, well, you can you can take the last one again and, and just show me that you're working and you can pretty much do whatever. So there was some support and some flexibility at that stage and I started experimenting with sculpture. Oh. Mostly just like found objects that was not her jam at all, yeah. um, but that encouragement meant a lot. And then from there, um, went to undergrad and was involved in a um, metals program at the University of Wyoming. metals focus program, uh, mostly cast iron, but was open to bronze, aluminum, other materials as well. And then... While in undergrad, I met my wife during study abroad for art. So I was working in stone and she was working in painting in Italy. And I would annoy her to no end um, because the sculpture yard was outside of her room. So I'd be out there early in the morning chipping away (laughs) at Alabaster and um, driving her crazy. Uh, So we met each other there. And then I came down to Texas shortly after my undergrad. We went to a master's program in Glasgow at at two separate times, but we were in Glasgow for about four years, and that was an interdisciplinary program, uh, much more concept-heavy than I was used to, which was great. It really opened things up for me. I didn't realize how much baggage I had kind of against what I used to view as kind of an elitist intellectualism. I think Americans in general have kind of a, a, a healthy skepticism of highbrow, but I think you can go too far with it to the point where you're doubting specialists just on the face of it, you know just yeah. to, if you find out that somebody's a specialist, then you don't believe what they say, which is in in a lot of ways just completely insane yeah yeah, yeah, um so I feel like I worked through some of that there and got involved in curating more heavily in Glasgow as well as writing and then once I came back to Texas from that, writing really took over mm. I did a lot of criticism, and that was a really great way to kind of. In a way, process that distance between what contemporary art is here and what contemporary art is there to process that kind of skepticism of the intellectual. Like, is there a way to write intelligently about art where non specialists can read it and actually get something from it? Yeah. Um, That became really important to me. And it's hard uh, because art is so difficult to talk about in general, let alone if you're going to try to do a deep dive to people who do not spend a lot of their life processing.
0: Yeah, it's intimidating to me. I mean, I've been reading a lot of things about things you've written about your work. People have written about your work, and sometimes it's like, wow, I don't even know really what that means. Right. It's hard to penetrate sometimes.
1: Right, and so you can go two ways with it. You know, you can you can say if a layperson isn't getting anything from this, maybe it's worthless. Or you can be like, if there's a place for difficult, intelligent ideas, maybe art's criticism is a really good place for that. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. that's where difficult writing should exist. I mean, without that, you've got philosophical writing, but then you really narrow down your audience even further. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, art's a pretty interesting entry point for people to think about big ideas. And so maybe the writing should just reflect that. It's hard to strike a balance. And I don't have the perfect answer to that question, but there it is. Yeah.
0: I've asked this question coincidentally on the last two interviews I've done. What do you think the role of the artist is in society?
1: That's a tricky one. Sometimes I get in this mood where uh, I think about the work of an artist as being really trivial. Because you're faced with these huge problems. And in some ways it feels like we're playing this game that is not actually addressing those. And maybe even just calling attention to those problems isn't enough. Right? Yeah. Um, I think that's a normal feeling. A common feeling among artists. But then you think about what's left... If all of the people who are crunching the big ideas, who are contributing to culture in a real way, are really exploring the um, connection between our senses and our intellect, I think without all of that, you get to the point of, what are you saving? You know, if you do fix all of the small problems, if you do fix all of these, like, very human problems, then what are you left with? Are you just left with a workforce that's healthy and well-fed and maybe barely above poverty? you fix all of those problems, then what's left. So you have to have something to remind you that, that we should be fixing those problems because there's something beautiful afterwards. And it's not just this kind of mindless, almost computer-like mechanical population.
0: And how do you feel like you personally are contributing to that to that end? Like, Do you feel yeah, so good about what you've done?
1: I think so. I think the different aspects of my practice work in different ways in relationship to that. So With curating and with writing, with writing in particular, I do feel like I'm opening up access to culture that wasn't there. So trying to help people who feel alienated by what we do to find value in it, to find more value in their own existence because of that. So that that feels like the outreach portion of what I do. (laughs) Um, And that that gives me a little bit more uh, guilt-free freedom in my practice to push in the other direction. To try and make work that has entry points for people of all experience, but that doesn't have to be so accessible as to eliminate all mystery. I think mystery is really important. Um, A lot of my work lately has been about nonlinear thought. I think that we as a society overvalue conclusion. We get angry when we watch a film and not every single thing is wrapped up. Yeah. We get mad about it, and that's because we value conclusions so much, when really very little in our lives is that neatly packaged. But because of that way that we value things, we tend to ignore anything that doesn't add up to a tidy some. So because of that, a lot of my work is open-ended, open-plotted. The work that I respect from other artists is often that way too. Um, Sometimes that runs the risk of closing people out. So I also like it when there's a nice entry point.
0: Maybe you could speak a little bit more in depth about your work. I mean, would that, would it make sense to frame that through the complex exhibitions? Yeah. Maybe you could just touch on those. Sure.
1: So for the last, uh, the last three major solo shows I've had, Have been part of this ongoing series that I've called Complex. So the first one is at Pump Project, Um, the second one was at the Southwest School of Art in San Antonio, and the third was at um, Artley Houston. So these came about first through like a very simple extrapolation of the evolution I've had in art, right? So in the beginning, I'm thinking about making these small, discrete works, self contained. And as soon as one is finished, I move on to something else. And then I'm thinking about bodies of work where these works relate to one another. And I think this is really common among artists as they go through their education, or even if they're self-taught, they kind of go through this way of working. Mm -hmm. Then from these bodies of work to um, thinking about exhibitions and how to craft an exhibition so it makes sense. So it's not just a a sequence of series, but they all work together to say something greater. And then that's kind of where I feel like the infrastructure for art tells people to stop. It's like once you've gotten that, then you just keep doing that and rinse and repeat. Um, maybe you build up a you know a life's body of work and somebody else can kind of codify that and put it in the catalog and say what it means. But your job as an artist kind of stops at this exhibition in a weird way. Mm. Um, social practice has broken that down a bit uh, where people kind of move outside of the gallery. Uh, but for me, I, I went about it a different way. I started taking the next logical step, which is, in the same way that you package up these smaller works, these discrete works, or works that kind of bleed into each other into exhibitions, can we take a series of exhibitions and package them all together, show them all at once, where people move from one basically solo show into the next solo show into another show where maybe you've collaborated with a few people, but all of these these chapters or exhibitions work together to form something just a little bit bigger, like a little bit more complicated You can kind of think about organisms the same way. You can think about, you know, cells, organs, organisms, and then society, right? Like the super organism. So trying to just like extend it one step further. So that's why they're called complex, right? So it's tricky. You've got to have a very particular space to be able to do that. Pump Project was great because it's huge. There's tons of individual rooms. And at that time, a lot of them were empty. Um, For that show, we built a second floor that Mm. would eventually become studios had a really great relationship with the uh, space there, mostly through Rebecca Marino. So we had this deal where I would put in the labor and build the second floor. They would supply us materials. I'd get it for my show, and then they'd have studios afterwards. And then I had a studio in that building too, so I got to see this kind of like strange living monument mm. that existed after the exhibition, right? Because it was inhabited and used by other artists.
0: Like something functional. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's where that series was started from the real thing i like about having those multiple rooms is you can make you can make a web or a spiral or a circle where people move through it in a natural way but then they end up back where they've been before that but they see things a different way so they see it through the lens of all the work they've already processed even though that might be the first thing they saw when they walked in the door
0: um and you're seeing the space differently than you've ever seen it right too.
1: yeah so it, it kind of breaks it out of this thing where you go into the gallery you circle around at once you might talk to somebody and then you leave it instead of that kind of linear progression it becomes something a little bit more organic and then hopefully it lets you value that organic processing of information in your regular life a little bit more to break you out of this kind of flat line of experience
0: yeah it's not just about squares hanging on the wall it's like right it's the whole space it's yeah. a whole experience it's yeah plenty of there's times there's, there's sound involved and- sometimes
1: performance lots of times you can kind of have a vantage point point. Like for Complex One, one of the clearest examples of this is that you go into the main space, you go to this gallery that you've probably seen plenty of shows in before, Uh, you see some sculptural work, and you expect that to be the whole show, and then you realize the rest of the building's open to you, and you move through it, and at some point you're up on this second floor balcony looking down in the gallery that you've been to a million times before and probably haven't seen from this vantage. And you see people move through it and you realize you were in that person's footsteps just a moment ago. But now suddenly you can see on top of these gigantic pedestals that you thought were maybe minimal sculptures when you first came in that gallery. And you can see on top of them and you can see the work on top of them. But you can also see the person who is basically a symbol of you a few moments ago, who doesn't have that information yet, who doesn't even know that these are pedestals. (laughs) And so you get this weird kind of doubling up of experience. Mm. But I actually think that happens to a lot of people throughout their day-to-day existence. It's just not something that we, that's a conversation piece or that we talk about. And maybe if they've got some exhibition, some touchstone that can be like, this reminds me of this thing that I saw instead of, you know, the sitcom that I watched that started it point a and into the point b Mm -hmm. then maybe we can start valuing that a little bit more
0: helping people to interpret their lives in a more complex way and get different perspectives and
1: that's right and not have to land on anything to be able to take an experience without having to make it all sum up to something more easily packaged could
0: you elaborate maybe on what happened with two and three then Sure. So,
1: um, added. so right. So they're each doing that in their own ways. Um, I'd say the first exhibition was a lot about ambition itself, kind of letting that run, kind of letting my ego go a little bit and trying not to check it as much. It's a strange place for me to be because most people in Austin at that point knew me as a writer. Uh, I'd been making work, but I hadn't been showing it. So
0: I feel like I had a lot to prove. Did it feel like kind of a make or break moment in a way? Like it could really Maybe. define where you went next.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I built up a lot of
1: really positive relationships with people. So I don't, think, I don't think it was make or break in the social sense. No, I'll take it back. I don't think it was make or break at all because it wasn't make or break in the social sense. I don't think it was make or break in the professional sense because yeah. the ecosystem here works so differently than uh, I think a lot of people would expect who exist outside of it things are really supportive here. Artists are really, really supportive of one another. You know, you might get the snide comment here or there, but I think if I had completely fallen on my face with that exhibition, if I had completely failed, I don't think anybody would be telling me anything else than try again.
0: But in the middle of creating it, did you not potentially feel, you know, it's like, oh, it could be successful, it could be a failure. Oh, or it's yeah, like,
1: absolutely. Okay. I mean, I felt like I was really losing my mind while I was making it, to tell you the truth, because I had kind of put this... I'd felt this pressure from basically preaching at people for years before ah. that about artwork and about what good art is uh, and sometimes what bad art is. That's that a lot of pressure. <laughs> it was. It's like, okay, well, now I'm on stage. Like, now it's me. So it was hard to do that without letting ambition and kind of looking for something bigger to become the meaning of the work. So. And talk about the pitfalls of that, too. So like that, that work in the main gallery that um, you know had these, at first, very minimal-looking um, sculptures that reached above the lights in the gallery. And then when you get on top of it, on top of those pedestals are bones. They're plastic bones, so it's this weird kind of sky burial. And there's a few cultures that work with that symbology, but it's interesting when you relate it to something like a creative career, and you're trying to move upward, and the kind of risks you run in doing that. Um, That was occupying my mind a lot at that moment, and so a lot of the different rooms referenced it in one way or the other, this kind of being aspirational. Mm -hmm. The second show, if the first show was about looking into the future, the second show was about looking into the past. So the second show at Southwest School of Art, I was thinking a lot about my rural upbringing and about, again, that distinction between the aesthetics of a rural upbringing and, and high art, right? This kind of, like, highbrow, somewhat elitist way of processing visual information. And then realizing that they're not that distinct, they're not that separate. So it was combining that imagery. There was one room in that show that was um, lined with live oak logs and had like an old um, sheepskin coat that my dad used to wear in it, right? And one of the things that I think about a lot when I think about my own work ethic and my upbringing is chopping wood in Wyoming in the winter. And you go into that room and you get the the smell of it and this really uh, palpable sense experience that's exquisite in the same way that a painting is exquisite. In the same way that we value all of this labor that goes into the art that we make and all of this heavy thinking. It's really similar to just going out there and chopping logs over and over and over again and getting into this kind of weird flow where you can kind of see how the log is going to split before you hit it. And there's this form to it just like there's a form in artwork where you can get better and better at this thing. And it's really, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a practical element to it, but there's also, it's just an aesthetic. You know, you're deciding to heat your house with this instead of with coal because you like it, because, you know, there's all of this history to it. There's phrases like it heats you twice, chopping wood, you know, while you're chopping it and once you Mm -hmm. put it in the fireplace. There's like this buildup of information and of aesthetics and of sense pleasure that comes from all of that, even though it's viewed as this, this thing is low and this thing is high. But it's just as detailed. It's just as, you can go just as deep with either one if you want to. And you can stay just as shallow with either one if you want to, too. So the second show became about that and kind of processing some of my past. And then the third one um, became much more transparently autobiographical and was about a chunk of my time that I left out of both of those other shows. About a time in my upbringing. I was involved in this Christian cult, Midwestern cult, for the first 13 years of my life. And I tried not to touch that information in my art, really. I didn't want that to define who I was. And I usually left it out of conversations. For maybe a few years before that show, I kind of started opening up about it a little bit. But still didn't want that to be like... The thing I was known for or the thing I even thought about. I, I spent so long forgetting it that it was hard to bring it back up, really. But I finally got this document, this video that that group produced in the early 80s. I'd been trying to find this video for a long time. They produced this um, dance production. It was an interpretive dance production. It seemed completely out of place for this very fundamentalist, charismatic Christian cult to be making. Very, very campy. I don't think they had any self-awareness of how campy it was, yeah. that basically articulated their beliefs in the form of dance and this like very over-the-top narration through the whole thing. The leader of the cult at the time, El Craig Martindale, he is the protagonist of the film. He's front and center the whole time, and it's like a two-hour film. And then there's this whole dance company moving around him, and he plays... I think they called it the man of God, but it's very much like God. He basically plays God, or at least Jesus, in yeah. saving these people from this devil woman <laughs> in the film. So I finally got my hands on this thing. been looking for it for a long time and managed to hear from somebody on one of the survivor forums for this cult that they had it. So once I got my hands on that, I knew that the next complex show just had to be... I just had to unpackage this. And really, I couldn't work on anything else because there was so much emotional nonsense to sort through just with working with that material that I couldn't let it sprawl out like the other complex shows had. Ah. So I chopped up this video into 40-minute sections that kind of uh, dovetailed into each other and set up three projectors on glass screens in a structure that, for me, kind of represented the journey in and out of this time of my life and the memory of it. And, um, like a
0: confusing maze. Yeah, it was a uh, spiral. Disorienting. It was, it,
1: it was a little disorienting. Like you kept expecting it to end before it did. You kept expecting this this hall to kind of end up in a room, and eventually it would, but only after you'd kind of given up on predicting when it would. But through that whole spiral, you could hear the sound of this video get uh, louder and louder. And that was, the sound of the edits was the most complicated part of that show. Because while I had the three videos playing all at once, you know, the first, third, the second, third, 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 if I let all of the sound run over the top of each other, it was easy to ignore because you couldn't latch on to everything, right? So it just became noise and you could just be like put off by it and not accept any of it. But by taking certain sections of it out, you had this thing where you were trying to find which video the sound linked up
0: with kind of like a three channel shifting
1: yeah and it was all around you too so you couldn't take any you couldn't take all of it in at once there was always something happening behind you while you were in it Mm -hmm. there was always a projector behind you showing so you had the sound usually from one or two of them and that would alternate between each different video and it was just enough uh confusion and clarity where you would recognize some information coming in, you would stay open for all information, and some information might slip in without you being super cognizant of it. it. Which, for me, was very close to the experience of being in a cult. And I think other people have that same feeling about things that are not as nefarious. Even, Even something like a job culture, which tries to indoctrinate you a certain way and you have resistance to it but you also have to be there for whatever reason or you feel pressure to be there and so other training gets in other programming gets in
0: part of the culture part of the way everyone be like everyone <sighs> else and yeah fit in so
1: and- social groups can work that way too of any sort uh having been through a cult i think i w- i might have just had a slightly different uh perspective mm-hmm. on how some of that works it's weird coming, thinking about all of this from a teaching perspective as well, because we don't have great language to talk about programming and manipulation. All of those terms are so loaded. Like if I say manipulation, automatically people are on guard, yeah. And it's a negative term, right? I guess the positive version of that maybe is training, but that that seems so more direct
0: or some like kind of guidance that's well-meaning, right? Could be a formative, right? right.
1: But all sure. of that also implies that you've got a choice in the matter and i think there's some positive training or positive manipulation where you don't really it's more subtle than that i think a lot of teaching actually happens that way where people are accepting ideas without actually like checking in on them it's kind of direct programming
0: yeah right well, I wonder then what kind of, after having created that work with those videos, like on the other side of that, how did that help you process that experience or what kind of clarity do you have now about it? I
1: don't know that it did. And oh. this is, a, this is a, a, a thing I keep going back to. There's an assumption that, at least I had an assumption, that when, um, when you forget some sort of trauma in your life, that you're forgetting it because you're not ready to process it. And that later on, like if somebody comes back from war and they've blocked something out, and if later on they're ready, then it will come back up and they can deal with it in a safer environment, right? Maybe that's true. I don't know. I expected that to be my experience by digging all of this stuff up and going back into it. But I'm starting to wonder if forgetting is not so much like a like a delay tactic, as it is a healing tactic on its own, hmm. and maybe it's better to let things go. Like you don't have to dig all of it up. Yeah, I don't know that I feel better having remembered that time in my life. Like I've got all the songs in my head again. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like I've, I really have remembered actual. Events and people that I had completely let go of before and I don't know that I'm honestly better off for it. That that sounds really pessimistic. I'm not actually a pessimistic person, but I have been going back and forth. I want to be really honest with myself about yeah. the value of, of this sort of thing. Um, I do know that it has been valuable for some other people who were involved in that group mm. and definitely for some people who weren't. People have reached out who I didn't have connection with while I was in that cult who were in it for much longer than I was. And we've, we've talked about experience together and kind of what that work did for them, or at least gave them some encouragement that people could kind of process that experience and that it didn't have to define them or shape them or have some grand narrative in their life. So that's interesting. Uh, there were some people who went to that exhibition who were still involved in that cult, and oh. it was, just went completely over their head. They they didn't think that it was a like a critique on their group, yeah. which is just par for the course. That makes sense. They're kind of blind to that. But yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm still pretty neutral on whether or not it's a good thing. I kind of liked... It had taken such a backseat in my life, and I really enjoyed that. I mean, I know some of those experiences shaped who I am, but I don't know if I need to be... I don't know if I need to refocus on that part mm-hmm. of my past. Yeah. So yeah, so maybe forgetting itself is a solution. Maybe you don't need to unpackage everything. Yeah. How about yourself, Scott? Have you had any experiences <laughs> you hope remain forgotten or have remembered and wished you hadn't?
0: Not that I know of, but <laughs> I'm I'm relating in some minor sense to, you know, potentially creating some kind of artworks. Around an experience as a way to maybe process them, you know, like my dad passed away last year from Lou Gehrig's disease, and like I've had a lot of thoughts around creating artwork and a performance and all these things that I've never even thought of sculpture. Wow, I've never even thought in that way before. That's a big like, departure for you. Of creating all these things around processing that. Great. So I don't know, but what you're saying makes me question whether that would actually potentially be. Helpful or not, I don't know. I'm not. Maybe sure. it's a different thing, but it, well, yeah,
1: it's definitely a different thing. But that doesn't mean that um, uh, what you're saying isn't true. I think it would be great to see what you come up with with performance and sculpture, though. That would be really amazing. It seems like so much of your work centers around documentation and especially the artistic community. You know, your photography as much as this podcast, really, yeah. where you're kind of documenting these other creatives and and yourself and how you process the world so maybe I mean maybe stepping out of that kind of meta thing where your art is about art yeah um that would be pretty interesting to see I'd love to see some performance about your own experience outside of the creative community
0: yeah I want to do it I just I need to do it (laughs) um I think it would be important. Oh, I think
1: your listeners should weigh in, too. I think they should respond and say whether they want to see some performance.
0: It would be a lot of different things coming together. It would be photography. It would be video. It would be music. It would be
1: movement. It I love it. would be like
0: a traditional play. Yeah. i mean, going to have all these ideas. Great. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Do it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Dive in. I appreciate that. <laughs> Some things you said earlier made me think about how or just wanted to know how you felt about I mean being so vulnerable about your life, your history, and your work.
1: Ah uh, yeah, okay. So the the last show I did was definitely my most open and transparent First, I thought that would be very, very scary and a vulnerable position, but in a way when you're when you just have it all out there, you're not hiding anything anymore like nobody can use anything against you or you're not worried like, "Oh well, what if they find out about this thing that I've told the entire planet <laughs> you know yeah. you're you're safe in a way getting there felt vulnerable, I guess, like deciding I was going to do it, and having those first conversations about it felt exposed at least, but After getting used to that, you know, you acclimate to the cold water.
0: Is that in any way related to, like, pushing your limits? Like, how does that, where do you feel that most?
1: It's important to follow your fear and to admit to what you're scared of doing and see if it's worth doing anyway. So that's a limit worth pushing against for sure.
0: Uh, Well, maybe we could transition to talking about, what do you want to talk about, curating or writing? More if we wanted to touch on those. Either
1: one. They're pretty related, really. Both of them, and even my art practice where I'm making my own work, they're all really about framing and reframing, you know, like setting up some sort of structure to view through. The writing part is probably just as collaborative as the curation, where rarely am I writing about something that doesn't involve another artist, at least one. So, yeah, it works in different ways. Writing's uh, really easy to get a foothold in for most people. It's the form of communication we use the most frequently. A lot of people feel like they only think in words, which is pretty amazing. That's, uh, that's uh, maybe a little more foreign to people in the visual arts or in music or performance for that matter. But I think for people outside of the creative fields, they don't realize how strange that is. That they've got all of, this, all of these senses. And when they're doing their thinking, it's kind of just like a running monologue for them. Um, maybe some memory stitched in there, but they're not thinking through images or space Um, so because it's used so often it's easier for people to grab onto and you in a way again talking about positive manipulation you can use words as a lure to get people to think in a way that's more expansive to to think in visuals and in space and in symbol that's beyond language to find meaning between words so writing about art is really fun yeah because of that because art can mean things that really can't be touched on with language but you can kind of lead them to it with language you know you can you can lead a reader you can take these glancing blows at what art's meaning is and maybe through that long series of glancing blows map out a silhouette and maybe people who are doing all this reading can guess at what's within that boundary so that's great i I love that it's so populist and so accessible language itself um the written word can bring people to something that's for a lot of people inaccessible,
0: yeah, you know when I was thinking about you writing about researching different subjects, researching artists and different types of art, it just it made me wonder, well, I mean, I think you spoke to that. It's like how has all this research and writing changed you or your own work, and then kind of made me curious about like maybe interesting examples of when you went into a subject or a person thinking one thing and then you were totally, that was totally flipped or changed or it changed you you know Mm.
1: Um, yeah well going to Glasgow was definitely part of that Um, going in with a certain attitude I don't think I would have guessed that I would have ever taught a class on critical theory before I went to Glasgow because that seems so nose in the air (laughs) You know mm-hmm. like I just didn't think it would happen, but then I got really into it over there. Part of how I got into that was doing so the thesis I did for my master's degree was about the infrastructure of Glasgow, how the art scene works there it's fairly unique. there wasn't a whole lot of information out about that, so the the best way to do that thesis was to do uh, first hand interviews like what we're doing here, yeah um, with all of the people who were involved in the scene as it was 20 or 30 years ago and the people involved in the scene as it is now or was when I was there. Yeah. So through that, I kind of got used to being surprised and used to having my expectations kind of blown out of the water nice. about how this practice or profession we're involved in works in different places. I feel like I spent a lot of time letting go of the notion that our career and the recognition for a career is merit-based. And I, I think that again is something that maybe Americans have a harder time letting go of than other people because it's like a fundament, fundamental aspect of the American dream, right? Like if you work hard, blah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. If you work hard um, or if you're the best at something then, you know? Um, but it's not so clean cut. I'm not saying that it's comp- it has nothing to do with merit. But it has a lot less to do with merit than any of us would like. So there's some really, really terrible art out there that is at at the absolute top of the art world, you know? And these people are getting rewarded by society for making some really terrible stuff.
0: And the opposite, I'm sure, too. And
1: the opposite. Some of the best art you'll ever see is produced by people who will never be recognized for it. And that's hard to accept. I get in arguments with very close friends, uh, some of them much more intelligent than me, about this all the time and we've got different ideas about how it works but i guess since i'm on on the air right now yeah, i sh- <laughs> i should put this out there it's okay it's not merit based like let it go make some really great art and if you get to the top fantastic maybe you'll like bend this a little bit more towards a merit based system maybe we'll start valuing the the best art that's out there but yeah it's not it's not really about that like it's not you can't get there i can't tell you how many times professors have told me just make the work and everything else will fall into place. It's not true. <laughs> There's plenty of people who have made amazing work who will never be known ever. It's not just about that.
0: That's interesting. Cause I feel like a big theme of a lot of the interviews that I've done, everyone kind of agreed, like just do the work, right? Yeah. Work, that's the thing. Work, that's work, what work, work. we
1: hear a lot. Just, just do the work and yeah, you should, because then we'll have some good artwork out there and
0: whatever you whatever learning. group of people yeah.
1: see that will yeah. benefit from it you know whether it's the five people in your family or whether it's your city or whether it's a state or a region or a nation uh, or the world those are all good things so I do think you should just make the work but I don't think you should expect that if you just make really good work everything else is going to work out
0: It might right. not well, how do you make <laughs> it work out or how do you be
1: okay I don't with it I don't have the answer <laughs> 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 sorry I don't know I really don't know. I don't know if, I don't know that these things are really completely in our control. I think you can position yourself well and hope. Um, keep rolling the dice. But I think a lot of how our arts infrastructure has worked is way more about a social game and luck than we want it to be. Mm. I wish it was another way. Yeah. I really do.
0: What does it working out look like for you? I mean, what do you hope for in the future?
1: With oh, I'd, I'd love to have the resources and time to make my artwork about 50% of the time yeah. to curate a show or two a year of other people's work and spend the rest of my time writing and um, have enough for my family. You know, That would be great. Yeah. I would love that. That would be definitely working out. I have aspirations that go way further than that, of course, like I want everything I want all of it all the time, um but if I had that much, that would be amazing. I would definitely feel like I'd won
0: and as far as the work that you're creating, fifty percent of the time, what happens with that? What does that do? Where does it gets shown?
1: people see it um the more people that see it, the better definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, and that I have the resources to actually make the work that I want to make I think I think most artists would be very, very happy with that sort of. Setup where they're they're being rewarded enough for their creative output that they can continue to make their creative output and still have a decently good quality of life outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty simple. But I'm pretty happy with what I've got right now. That's pretty good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you did live in Austin, but you're not actually here at the moment. Yeah, um, I, uh, I say
1: splitting time. That's not totally accurate. Uh, we have not been gone for very long we've been in upstate new york for about three months our goal was to spend one month out of every three or four back in austin so this is our one month back in austin out of three and a half months i guess at this point um we'll see if we can keep that pattern going it's a little tricky but i think we can do it
0: maybe if you don't mind just sharing thoughts about austin in general the art scene here and and something i'd read about you were talking about this kind of unified voice of art in texas if that's still kind of your thoughts Sure.
1: Um, the good things about Austin Art Scene, this it's very open. You can come in as an outsider and get to know people fairly quickly. People are friendly here and supportive. So you can ask almost anyone involved in the art scene for a studio visit, and they will likely say yes. It might ha- not happen right away, but they'll get around to seeing your work. And if you ask them to be honest about your work, they will be, which is also really amazing. Um, and they're able to be honest without being mean. For the most part.
0: So, yeah, there's not a lot of pretentiousness, I don't think. I mean, at least.
1: No, well, yeah, at least there's not a lot of. um, It's not cutthroat, you know? There doesn't feel like there's this huge competition. It feels like we're all on the same team and we're working to build something better, which is amazing, really. (laughs) I mean, that's (laughs) like, that's a really beautiful thing. So, that is probably the best thing about the scene here. Um,. What do you think the worst thing about the scene is, Scott? I
0: don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Um, well, I guess everyone talks a lot about space. Well, know,
1: yes, that's... space is a big thing. Okay, so resource. That's what I was going to say. Resources are tricky, right? Yeah. Um, there are some huge exhibition spaces, but not all, a whole lot of exhibition spaces. There are not a lot of buyers, and most of them... A lot of buyers who live in Austin buy elsewhere, so that doesn't really get the resources back in, into the creative pool here.
0: Which has always confused me, because I feel like there is so much money in this town. There's so much there is. tech. In and there's, there's actually I mean, a lot
1: of art collectors, too. I used to think there weren't a lot of art collectors, but I now I think there are. Some of them buy local art, which is fantastic. I wish we had more of that. But a lot of them aren't really interested in what's happening in the scene here, hmm. for whatever
0: reason. Is it because we don't have a, you know... The same clout as Houston and Dallas and everyone that's else? That's a big part of it, yeah.
1: Or L.A. or New York. That, I think those two are really kind of magnets for art resources or money. So,
0: yeah, Could that's that part change? of it. change? I mean, what, uh, there's a lot of like potential, time, right?
1: Honestly, mm-hmm. I think a lot of time. So, uh, Houston has had um, museums for a long time. and There's a generational aspect to their philanthropy. It's been uh, taught from families of wealthy people to their children, that this is an important thing to do. There's some sort of pressure on people with a lot of money in both Dallas and Houston and L.A. and New York to support the arts in some way, whether it's through collecting or through some other method. I don't think we have a whole lot of that yet in Austin. I think some of that comes with the fields that are prominent in Austin. Tech is a lot of new money, and they very much value experience. Which is good. I mean, there's some there's some arts that are catching up with that, you know. But it's it's kind of a two edged sword, you know. If you sink too much into this idea of spectacle, I work with spectacle all the time in my artwork. So don't get yeah, me wrong, yeah. I'm not harping on spectacle, but um, spectacle is more attractive to them than things. Um, they're younger, so uh, I think it's harder to bring that money into the creative field, especially something like visual art, where you you end up with this physical product, this and physical product. I'm not sure if any of that makes sense. It totally makes sense. These are guesses. Really yeah. I don't think anybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they know why that connection's not happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so resource is the problem, right? We've got space, we've got a super supportive community, we've got lots of really amazing talent in Austin, but the resource is not their resource line is not there. We've actually got really good or really large amount of city funding. Which is pretty amazing. But because we don't have buyers and we don't have uh, city funding that's linked to any sort of merit based system that's actually based off of the quality of the work, then we have this other weird thing, right? Like we don't, we have a hard time figuring out what's good. And there's not a whole lot of critics in town either. There's not a whole lot Mm. of writers. So we don't have like any of these structures to build up a specific taste. I think it's awesome that it's 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 so flat right now that people can come in from any aspect and like claim that this is what we should be looking at, and they have like an equal voice in a way that's really amazing, really really democratic. But another way, we don't go anywhere. We kind of just we're all yelling at each other about what we should be doing. There's no specialists weighing in really. So the city funding, for example, the city funding is is more based on how long you've been getting city funding and how much you spend out of your budget every year than it is on what you're actually doing with that money. And that's a problem. And nobody's looking at it, right? Like, it's not based on how much is this contributing to culture? Who's seeing it? Like, is it changing the way we think about anything? Instead, it's like, how many community members are we getting in? That's important, I guess. Yeah, for sure. How many tourists is it bringing into the city? Okay. Uh, And how much of your budget did you spend last year? Are you down to zero in your account? We will give you more money this year if you are. If you saved any of your money and did things responsibly, you get less money from the city. So that's my critique on the city funding. What's great about it, there's good people involved. There's very few people who are working for uh, the grant structures involved in city funding, and they do an amazing job because of just the simple number of people they have to deal with. Mm. There should be more of them, but also there should be specialists involved. We should bring in some contemporary art curators to decide who gets these grants at least in part it shouldn't be so heavily weighted just on how much money you spend as an organization i think that could really really help yeah (laughs) there's my spiel about all uh uh, yeah so so we we need to have some sort of uh, way of evaluating what we're doing we don't really have that other than um small talk if that was linked to some sort of resource line i think it would be even better we could definitely use some more collectors. But we've actually got the really difficult parts, right? Which is sport of community and
0: talent. (laughs) No, I I really appreciate everything you said. I I feel like... (laughs) I I don't have any opinion
1: about it to be honest. I mean, oh, oh I gotta I gotta get one more thing in about the city. Oh no. Okay. Okay. So one more thing. <laughs> one more thing about Austin's art scene uh, I think is applicable right now. Uh, so I was involved in Pump Project. We talked about that. Yeah. And um, they're facing some some opposition to rebooting in a new location. And a lot of this comes back to this idea about gentrification. And I'm not going to say that I have solutions for gentrification or all of the solutions for gentrification, but I think it's I think again this needs to be dealt with at a city level. I don't think arts organizations are going to be able to solve this problem. I think there needs to be some tax relief for nonprofits from city level as well as like people who've lived in a neighborhood for a very long time who are seeing this kind of wave of development come out. And the arts are involved in that because they're always like the front line of development, right? Or like they they go into super cheap spots. Everybody knows the story. They go into super cheap spots. They up the value of it. There are also people who go to cafes and bars all the time. So the cafes and bars comes out. And then development full scale Mm -hmm. follows shortly afterwards. I don't think it helps to be attacking the arts organization for this problem i think it's important that we all acknowledge that we're where we are positioned in that problem so yeah if the city could like get on top of that get some tax relief to the people who need it i think that would help the arts be accepted a little bit more widely
0: in austin do you have any general thoughts that you would just like to share with artists in general in austin that might be listening advice or just kind of like things that you've figured out that you think might help someone else
1: uh, whenever I'm asked a question like this, I jump into it head first and I like take it on and I'm like, yes, I've got advice and I've got <laughs> answers and people should listen to me <laughs> and I feel like I've done this a few Did times you it, a few <laughs> times in this interview already like I oh, always yeah. am like ah take the bait, jump in um, but I'm not exactly where I want to be yeah I feel like all of the advice I would be giving people would, be what I think might work to get me where I want to be. Uh, but I have no idea if it's real or not, if it's true. Yeah. I think it's really common for people when they get asked, what should other people do to yeah. whatever? <laughs> They're like this. <laughs> and then it's like, I no, they have no idea either. Like We're all clueless yeah. and we're all trying to figure this out together. Well, what do you need to do? <laughs> <Or> what are <laughs> need you to doing do next? next? <laughs> uh, this Where is, are you going? Next? This is what I am doing next. I don't know if this is what I need to do. I am letting go of a very comfortable, very very enjoyable life mm. that I had built up for myself here in Austin over the years, and could see extend out to infinity. That my yeah. whole life was going to be this, and it was going to be pretty good, you know. Yeah, And I am letting go of all of that to try something new. And I don't know what's out there. Ooh. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. I could be back here in a year being like, I, I spend all of my money in New York. I don't have a job. I'm still compulsively making artwork in somebody's closet somewhere. And it was a mistake. You should stay put if you've got it good. I could be you,
0: I could be saying that. I you don't, don't know. You want to elaborate on the specifics of this? Is it a secret or No, a secret no, experiment? it's not
1: it's <laughs> totally not a secret. No, it's uh, so this is this is kind of why we've gone to New York. Yeah. We're kind of chasing after what we want our artistic careers to be. Okay. And we saw some limits. I guess you were talking about limits. We saw some limits with our addiction to the comfort we had built up here. Yeah, I don't want to say that you have to you have to suffer for your work. There's tons of ways to make work. There's some extraordinarily happy people who make excellent work, and they will continue to make excellent work and continue to be happy. But for me, the comfort was getting in the way of really going after it. I don't know. Try that out. If comfort's not working for you, <laughs> get off the couch.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: What do you think art in Austin should be? Where do you think? What's the goal here? What is the advice for?
0: I guess the thing that I battle with a lot in trying to figure out what people are doing and the experiment of different people's lives and art is like tr- just trying to figure out a way to like keep doing your art and survive, and whether that means is that the goal? Keep doing your art and survive. <laughs> um, I mean, is that too? Just wanna- I guess if someone's compelled to create art, then it's like how do you keep? being able to do that and have a nice life
1: all right I got it the best thing you can do to keep making your art and have a nice life let's see get a stable and decently paid job and reserve some free time to make your art what do you think is it too jaded you think they should I be- mean
0: I, I feel like that's totally valid for some people some people yeah can't stay in that box either oh god i'm so bad at
1: that that's that's the other thing i always wonder about is um we we kind of deal in in optimism and advice and sometimes what are what are people after what are they what do they want the advice for is it is it just to keep going Is like is survival what we're looking for or is there something else
0: i guess the way i think about these conversations is that i would hope that someone listening would Find on a basic level, just find some value in it and there might be some kernel of something that just gives them an idea or keeps pushing them forward or inspires them or helps them to keep going if that's what they want to do.
1: I certainly think you've provided a lot of people some needed encouragement. Oh. For sure, with this. Good. Talk to some great artists as well.
0: Yeah. Well, do you have any final words? Uh, Uh, keep making your
1: art. Just, just keep making your art. Um, I'm not going to say it's all going to work out. That doesn't mean you should stop. In fact, if you know it's not going to work out, make art even harder and faster. That's my glowing advice for all you <laughs> listeners. Okay.
0: Well, thanks, Seth. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.